Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In the last year, I've traveled through Turkey, Iran, and Morocco. Traveling through Islamic countries offers an invaluable first-hand insight into an important faith and way of life that many Americans struggle to understand. After actually traveling there, I overcame fears and misconceptions, and I gained an appreciation of a rich and friendly culture. Whether visiting popular destinations such as Turkey and Morocco, or being stationed in the military in the Middle East, many other Americans have had similar experiences. But many of us who travel to Muslim countries from the United States find a few things jarring. Most notably, it's the treatment of women and gay people that's different from back home. Today, we'll take a glimpse at these two facets of Muslim life that tend to be veiled or closeted from public view. Our two guests have written books on their experiences as outsiders in the Muslim world. They share a common theme of gaining access to a more intimate and personal aspect of Muslim society than most of us are likely to experience as a typical tourist. Maliha Massoud is an American born in Pakistan who gave up a dot-com job in Seattle for months of adventure in Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Turkey. She's written about what she found as an American Muslim woman traveling solo in her book Zatar Day's Henna Nights. And Michael Longo is a travel writer and senior editor at Harrington Park Press in New York City. He's compiled a group of first-person essays called Gay Travels in the Muslim World. Michael's book depicts a series of often unexpected and unconventional encounters among men in the male-dominated societies of the Middle East and North Africa. Today, we'll examine some of the surprises for outsiders in the Muslim world. Michael and Maliha, thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Thank you. Now, first of all, I want to talk with Meliha about uh, your experience. According to your book, you're a sort of a burned-out dot-commer from Seattle, 28 years old, decided, uh, uh, boy, life's too short just to sit here. Let's go explore the world. You are Pakistani-born, practicing Muslim, and you just decided to go back and, and see what it was like for a, a woman traveling through Islam. Spent a year from Egypt to Turkey, is that right? Right. I was in Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Turkey, so kind of the heart of the Middle East. And... Really, I was, from a very, very young age, very intrigued by the Arab world. I was always drawn to the desert. After we came to Seattle, my father and I always used to drive through small-town Washington and play this sort of Jeopardy word game of naming all the world capitals. And every time he got to the Middle East and he would rattle off Cairo, Damascus, Beirut, Istanbul, I was always very intrigued by those names. To me, they were names that were fascinating, names that I wanted to eat. They were not as frightening. Um, hmm. They were mysterious. And being a Muslim, I always associated the Middle East as being the birthplace of Islam. And I wanted to go and experience the culture and see it up close. I wanted to go pray in beautiful mosques that I'd read about or seen about and really immerse myself in that culture and get firsthand exposure. Growing up as a, a person who was born in Pakistan but raised in America, you had a sense then that you really didn't have a fair understanding of Islam. I, I always have been very close to Islam, but what I wanted to do with my journey was to merge my love of adventure with this idea of finding myself in my roots. Now you say it was a personal and spiritual quest in an attempt to transcend duality. What does that mean? Duality, Rick, is by far the undercurrent sort of theme throughout my book. It is the thesis of my life where I have always felt as 
a person straddling borders, straddling cultures, straddling nationalities. So you're a modern Gen X American woman wrapped up in the software industry. At the same time, you're a Pakistani Muslim. Right. And I felt that I I had to go experience this place and push my boundaries and find out what else I was capable of doing beyond the bullet points of my resume. Now, Meliha, the book Zatar Days and Henna Nights, why did you I don't even know what za'atar days is. That's a, that's a great question. Well, za'atar is a very common spice in the Middle East. It's similar to thyme, and I would uncover it a lot of times when I would be going to souks in Damascus. It would be in these great big burlap sacks, and it would be dark green herb. Um, I would start buying it by the pound, and we would eat it in the mornings for breakfast by mixing it with some olive oil and spreading it on pita bread. And it became like my standby stash. I would carry it in my pocket. Kind of like peanut all butter and jam. For, yeah, yeah. Zatar yeah. and olive oil. Huh. And henna, as you know, is beautiful tattoos. And coming from South Asia, we have a different name for henna. We call it mehindi. Hmm. So these two words, Zatar and henna, sort of capture the duality of my journey, the duality of this quest. Zatar and henna, and you have day and night. Is henna more dark and you want the behind-the-scenes sort of thing? Right. Zatar is a bright, fragrant market. Yeah, kind of like the day-to-day mundane things that you often have to negotiate when you're traveling. Because you wanted more than just a pile of castles and palaces that were your travel memories. Right. You wanted to get those henna nights. Right. Now, you spent a year on the road this way. Boy, the book is a fascinating insight into not staying in fancy hotels, but as a matter of principle. I don't know how much money you had, but you sure decided not to spend it. Very frugal. You're very frugal, and that drove you closer to the culture. You did this trip just before 9-11. Did you set out to write the book on this trip? Not at all. So how, was, now that's interesting. Most people take a trip in order to who are writers to write, but you did this trip without thinking you'd write about it. Nine eleven happened. Tell me the whole story there. Well, I literally came back to Seattle on September first, two thousand and one. Ten days later, nine eleven occurred, and for me, it was like sensory whiplash. I was having to deal with two starkly differing realities, the reality of 9-11 and its aftermath spewing out on TV screens and the headlines, and the reality of my memory, which was this amazing, empowering, transformative experience I had just had from the Middle East, the very region in the world that was now being so demonized, so negative, and both of these realities were true. And I had to honor them both. And I decided to pay a tribute to my experience and as a way of writing about it, maybe, maybe shedding some more light and perspective. Talk about a whiplash. You come home, all of a sudden you're turned on by the wonders of Islam. Ten days later, you got people punching out Muslim people in the streets just because they think they're terrorists. Right. A different world for a Muslim in it, America. It really changed me. 9-11 is what made me a writer. Did you have an agenda in this book, given the fact that 9-11 changed America's perspective on the world? Um, when I started writing the book, I wanted to keep it very true to that experience and really immerse myself in that voice, in that moment, as I had day-to-day discovering new things in the Middle East. The people that I met contradicted so many stereotypes that we have of Muslims and Arabs that the stories just sort of started to come out. Given the fact that you did the trip intending to be on vacation, Mm -hmm. and then you came home and you realized, oh, now I'm going to write a book, did you wish you took better notes as you were going? You know, it's very hard to record the journey as you're traveling. I was so busy running around having these great adventures. I didn't really sit down 
and analyze it as it was happening. But I'm very visual in my thinking, so I took tons and tons of photographs. So when I started to write the book, seven years after the journey, it was really the images and the photos of my friends that brought it all back to life. Meliha Masood, author of Zatar Days and Hannah Nights. This is a, a fascinating beginning there, and I, I want to delve deeper into issues that women would find traveling through Islam. And of course, we've got some of our listeners calling in, but we want to now open it up to the other half of our Outsiders in the Muslim World discussion and talk with Michael Luongo. And Michael is the editor of a book called Gay Travels in the Muslim World. And Michael has collected essays from gay travelers, both from and visiting the Muslim world, and collected into a book that gives us a fascinating insight into the situation for gay people in Islam. Michael, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Rick. Now, Michael, why did you write this book, and who's, who's your audience? Well, the audience is a rather broad audience. It's uh, academics. It's clearly gay men who are very interested, people who are interested in traveling in the Middle East and the Muslim world. And I also get a lot of women who come to the events that I have. I began thinking about doing stuff along these lines after 9-11. I live in New York, and I was able to photograph uh, in Ground Zero uh, a few days after the event. Immediately after 9-11, you started to see quite a bit of homophobic coverage. For one, Mohammed Atta, who was one of the men who flew the planes into the Twin Towers, there was talk of him possibly being gay and wanting to prove to his father that he could be a stronger man. Um, and that's why he was one of the ones who initiated the attacks. Once we invaded Afghanistan, you started to see a lot of clearly homophobic coverage of quote-unquote gay issues in Afghanistan from the Scotsman, which is a paper in uh, the UK, writing about gay farmers offering sex to British soldiers, to articles about uh, the Taliban and whether or not they all had sex with each other, even if they professed to kill gay men, uh, but would behind all of that just fool around with each other. And because they were possibly gay, maybe that's why they hated women. Once we went into Iraq, one of the things was Abu Ghraib and the homoerotic torture of the prisoners. So you started to see huge amounts of coverage along these lines. I began traveling myself in Afghanistan in 2003, traveled there in 2004 and 2005, and then finally Iraq. So I began to realize that clearly this is an issue and clearly this is something in the news. Clearly this is something that needs to be told from a less homophobic and perhaps a more subtle, uh, nuanced way. Okay, so you collected a bunch of people then who had uh, ways to contribute to what you saw as a misunderstanding promoted by the media. And we've got a, a collection of 17 different writers that have told their story then in this book, right? 17 plus myself. In selecting the authors, what were you looking for? And, and then what did you get? You know, I got even people who disagreed with me. I did have somebody writing about very terrible experiences in Morocco uh, where a friend of his was murdered who had picked up uh, a man who probably didn't identify as gay but offered his services to gay men who traveled there. Um, I had a story from a Palestinian raised in Saudi Arabia, and he explained the tremendous homophobia that existed within his family. But then I also had other stories where um, people talk about the subtleties. I, I think that the word gay in particular is a very Western concept. In Arabic and Muslim cultures, which are very homosocial, uh, where men socialize primarily with men, the idea of being gay doesn't necessarily exist. But when men get together, homosexual as a behavior can happen. And one of the things that was very important to me was to get stories that sort of discussed this conflict. 
which I think once people go to the Middle East and they see how nuanced it is, they have a better understanding of what is wrong with some of the homophobic coverage that's in the media. Okay, so we've got this issue of to do versus to be and what is permissible and what's not. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're talking about outsiders in the Muslim world. We're talking about feminist issues and gay and sexual issues in Islam. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're talking outsiders in the Muslim world, and we're dealing with feminist issues and issues of sexuality in Islam. I'm joined by Maliha Masood, a Muslim Pakistani-American. She's written a book called Zatar Days, Hannah Nights, Adventures, Dreams, and Destinations Across the Middle East, based on her experience of a, of a year just delving into Islam as a single woman traveler. And we're also joined by Michael Luongo. He's the editor of a book called Gay Travels in the Muslim World, and Michael is a Catholic Italian. American who uh, is gay, and he has traveled in the Middle East, and he's collected 18 different essays about people's experience traveling through the Middle East from a gay perspective. Now, when Americans think about Islam, the, the things that are most perplexing come out of a fundamentalist Islam approach to issues like this. Let me just get the, the reality here. Um, Maliha, from a woman's point of view, what's the state of, of women in Islam that that is most perplexing from an American point of view? What's the reality for women in Islam? Well, I think, first of all, when we're talking about Islam, you really have to ask yourself what angle you're looking at. You can look at Islam as a culture. There's Islam as politics. There's Islam as faith. And when we're talking about women in Islam, what often happens is there's a rift between perception and the inner reality of Muslim women, which really varies enormously across families, across individuals, across societies. So there is no monolithic women in Islam kind of a perspective. It's very, very diverse. But what if somebody's quoting Muhammad about a woman's place in society? What's the catchphrase? It would depend on the individual interpretation. Um, if you're a progressive Muslim, um, if you're a feminist then Muslim women are empowered. They're not oppressed, as typically believed. You can be a woman who veils and still be strong and outspoken, as I met many women in Cairo that way. Um, it's a matter of interpretation. Okay. And if you're an Archie Bunker Muslim, what would you say about women? Um, you might then say that there are some issues to resolve. Um, it, it, Archie wouldn't say that. Well, Archie Bunker wouldn't really have any problems with that. Okay, so so, so there's really not... My, my daughter just got back from Morocco as a 17-year-old there, and it blew her away how women could be kept down on the streets and veiled, but still empowered. It was a very complicated, mm -hmm. and it's so dangerous that we just have a simplistic yeah. look at it, and yeah. it just really challenged Veiling her. in particular, because I, I teach this course called Burqas to Catwalks. It's a very accessible sort of course on women in Islam at the University of Washington, and it's gotten a huge amount of interest. I've got three professors who were enrolled in my class last semester, and oftentimes, the things that we come up against constantly is this idea that Muslim women are oppressed, they don't have a voice, and um, they're living in this very rigid faith. There's all these rules and that kind of thing. And what I'm trying to say is, you know what? It all comes down to interpretation. It's, it's the women themselves and what they perceive. I mean, when you look at a thing like veiling, even in one family like ours, Everyone is coming to it from different angles. So a well-educated, modern Islamic woman 
could be veiled and very comfortable with absolutely, that. Absolutely, absolutely. And happy with her state in society. Absolutely. Oftentimes, veiling is a very politicized persona and identity, and it becomes a symbol to come back to your roots or it's a backlash against Western values. So there's many different levels to it. Hmm. And it's important to look at the gray shades rather than this sort of black and white notion of oppression versus liberation. Is there a difference in a woman's place on the street as in in the home? I think so. Um, Oftentimes when I had friends in Cairo, on the streets, you know, they would have these very steely demeanors. They would wear their headscarves and they wouldn't make eye contact with people. And when they came home, you know, they would fling their scarves and it would be all happy-go-lucky, very, very open and free with their questions. So there were two different I found that I was in Turkey for Ramadan and I was so fascinated by, frankly, sexy young women wearing the complete Mm -hmm. uh, religious conservative garb and I knew there was some very oh, yeah. exciting clothing under that yeah. and high heels. And these are <laughs> beautiful uh, women. And then they would go home or be more casual, and they wouldn't have that veneer mm-hmm. of conservative fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. Do you absolutely. find that in your uh, Oh, absolutely. And I often think that veiling can sexualize a woman just as much by hiding her adornment. So the very fact that, you know, you're covering your hair is... So that can be appealing it's, to a, it's, a, a it can Muslim be a big turn on or somebody who's absolutely tuned into that. absolutely and women know how to use their eyes a lot in Middle Eastern Muslim cultures. So oftentimes there's a lot of suggestion a in a, a way you mystique. look at someone. The gaze, the female gaze, is talked about a lot in Islamic poetry. There's a parallel, I think, in in the Hindi cinema. Because the very, very subtle sex, but really sexy. Mm-hmm. But there's barely a kiss on the screen. Mm-hmm. It's all in the suggestion. It's yeah. it's all understated. Okay. Let's uh, hold on to that. We'll get deeper into that in a little while. But now I want to talk with Michael Luongo about the reality for gay people in Islam. Uh, Michael, given the fact mm-hmm. that, that you're not a, a Muslim, but you've done this book and you've traveled there and you've you've learned about it because you are gay traveling in Islam, what's your take on... What would Mohammed say uh, about gay culture? Well, I want to say that I really agree with a lot of what Maliha had said, and a lot of it would also apply to gay issues or homosexual issues within the Islamic world. And one of the things, as somebody who is not Muslim and who's a Catholic who was raised primarily in a Jewish neighborhood, what I often throw back at people is, well, the Quran and the Bible and the Torah are really the same book. So when you want to criticize what Islam says, what does your own religion say? And no religion really ever says anything good about homosexuality. And they're all three the Abrahamic faiths. Um, What is interesting, and I've only read parts of the Quran, but in English, is the story of Lot. And the story of Lot in the uh, Quran kind of is a little bit more gay than it is in the Bible, uh, because it's a little more clear that these men come to his house because they want to have sex with, with uh, other men. Um, so that's specifically mentioned uh, in the Quran. So it does exist. Again, it's, it is open to interpretation. What I find very interesting is that the fact that the more conservative a country is, the more likely that men are separated from women, the more likely it is to find men flirting very clearly with other men, 
um, this homosocial behavior that can become homosexual. Even the concept of the idea of witnesses, that in Islam, nothing bad would happen as long as there are no witnesses to an event, then the event never happened. So men can have sex with other men as long as it's never really talked about and as long as there are no other witnesses. So many things go on behind closed doors. Many things are suggested, just as Malia had said. There's this sort of very furtive nature to much of the Islamic world. And given the strict social mores and the taboos and so on, do you find people give people a little more private world to to do things that wouldn't be accepted on the streets? Well, but really struck me in particular in Afghanistan, and I'd read so much of this before I went there, um, was about men having sex with men. And then I found that sometimes the religious environments were the areas where men flirted more heavily with men or even actually brought up the subject of sex with other men. So it's, in some ways, it's private, and in some ways, it's so part of the culture that it's constantly discussed. The other thing for me as an outsider to the culture, I'm Italian-American, so I often actually pass as Arabic no matter where I am. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm in my 30s, and I'm not married, and that's a very unusual thing in the Middle East and in Muslim countries. So even if it's not quite stated that I'm gay, men there have an idea that I'm probably a gay Western man, and things can lead to other things, or they can bring up things, or they can be a little bit more flirtatious. Also, because I'm an outsider, I can also have different experiences from somebody of the culture, where somebody may step over a boundary that they wouldn't with somebody from their culture. So as a, as a gay single American traveling in Islam, who's open to romance, do you find you're approachable? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. Uh, the other thing... Uh, is it dangerous? And this is something... Do you have to be careful? Uh, yes, you do have to be careful. You definitely why? have to be careful. Why, but why do you have I to do be find, careful? Well, because it, depending on the country that you are in, technically it would be a violation of the social mores. Even if the furtive nature of everything is it's everywhere and yet it's forbidden. In a certain way, it's sort of like going back to the 1950s here in the U.S. where... Clearly, teenagers wanted to do something, but it was against the culture to do it. So does that heighten, does that heighten sort of the adventure and the uh, Yeah, sex, I think it can because it? flirtation is very important in Muslim countries and in ways that are a little bit different from here. I think in the same way that Malia had said that the eyes are very important for women, the eyes are very important for men. In the United States, men are taught not to look directly into other men's eyes when they're speaking to them, right. um, depending on the situation. Muslim men will really gaze into each other's eyes. It's not necessarily uh, a flirtation mechanism, but it is very different from what we're used to. So there's like unspoken communication going on with this deep eye contact. Yeah, and sometimes even physical contact. And do, do they highlight their eyes? They've got this, they've got this uh, makeup. Cool, right? It depends on the country. In Afghanistan, it's actually rather common. It's not necessarily a gay thing. I want to make that very clear that what is feminine in our culture... Yeah. And a marker of being gay is okay. not necessarily the same within Islamic countries, within uh, the Middle East. But if men do wear makeup, it's on their eyes. Yeah, it would be coal around okay. their eyes. That's not something that men in the cities do, but it's men uh, in, the, in the country. Okay. We have lots of pictures of the Taliban, and the Taliban was actually a movement of rural men. Now, Michael, you mentioned something that, and I, I picked it up also by reading your book, there's this notion that in strict Islam, a man will never see a naked woman unless he's married to her. Uh, and you say that might even contribute to 
that it's there's more opportunities for intimacy among men. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's definitely right. Well, what happens is that to have sex with a woman is so haram, to use the word in Arabic for forbidden, that you could be put to death, that you could be completely ostracized. I mean, we know all about the... Uh, the honor killings, particularly for women, it's very dangerous for a man to have sex with a woman in the Islamic world, depending on how conservative the country is. It is much easier for a man to have sex with another man. The behavior is not the same as identity. So if a man has sex with another man because he's only in environments with men, uh, there's nothing There's nothing strange about it. Men can hold hands. Men holding hands is not a gay thing, but it means that men are intimate with each other in ways that they would not be in the West and in ways that they cannot be with women. And one thing can lead to another. In some of these countries I've been in, they say that um, it's better to have sex with a man because that's fun and to have sex with a woman, well, that can be deadly. Wow. But again, it all depends on the country. Before we go on, you, you made this very interesting point, and I want to get Melia's take on this because... You know, you're a you're a gay guy, but you're not Muslim. She's not gay, mm-hmm. but she is Muslim. So we'll we'll get Melly to weigh in on this in a sec here. But you said this behavior versus identity, and then in your book you talked about to do versus to be. Yes. Tell me what that is all about. Well, I think in the West, and again, this is part of my being an outsider to the culture. Um, whatever we do in the West, it's our identity. In the Middle East and in Muslim countries, and again, that's a broad generalization, to do something is not to be. So two men can have sex with each other, but that doesn't mean that they're gay in the Western sense. So they haven't come out um, and declared themselves as gay. Is that the idea? Well, see, if you, if you say the word come out and declare themselves as, as gay, you're putting a Western perception on behavior in another culture. And I try to make that very clear that, uh, and I use the word gay because it's just a shorthand, but our behavior or behavior there is not identity. So it's not about coming out. It's a different look at so the a man could be behavior. a man could be an established business leader who's happily married. And on the other hand, he could be... Um, he could be having sex with other men. Completely yes. into the gay world uh, behind the scenes. He wouldn't be living... In America, that would be like stressful. You'd be living two different realities. Well, we might use the term on the down low. Um, like Governor McGreevy, I guess, uh, having something very public and then something uh, behind the scenes. But again, we're using a a Western perception Hmm. of to do is to be, which is different from there. Sexuality is perhaps more fluid. Okay, so to do is not necessarily to be. That's the bottom line then for the gay world. That's the bottom line, yes. Okay, I'm talking with Michael Luongo. He's the editor of a collection of 18 essays in a book called Gay Travels in the Muslim World. And we're talking with Meliha Masood, who is uh, the author of Zatar Days, Henna Nights, Adventures, Dreams, and Destinations Across the Middle East by a a woman traveling alone. Meliha, this must be interesting for you. You're you're Muslim, and here we are, two Christian guys talking about <laughs> gay Muslim issues. <laughs> Set us straight, or whatever you want to well, say. Well, one thing that um, often occurs to my mind, and I'm thinking this as I'm hearing you talk, is there's always this idea of things that you cannot do if you're a Muslim. You know, you, there's all these taboos that apparently you cannot breach, and having sex is one of them. Um, Muslims tend to have a short acronym for breaching these taboos, which I refer to as BCD, behind closed doors, which implies that there is a form of subterfuge that happens across societies where you do break the taboos. You 
can go and have sex with your girlfriend as long as it's within the privacy of your own home. Um, it is not something that is absolutely forbidden. It comes down, again, to what I was saying earlier, individual tastes, um, what level of society you're coming from. Muslims can and do drink, despite the official taboo that alcohol is forbidden in Islam. So there is always, always, always a duality between what you cannot do by social norms and what you can do by individual discretion that is very, very similar to other countries. And there you get back to this duality thing, which is one of your themes in your book. And, and in your class, I would imagine you teach that class from burqas to catwalks. As a Muslim teaching Americans to better understand Islam, what's the frustration? Are we trying to make it too simple? Do we insist it's on the, looking at it It's the perception. Our... It's always the perception and people thinking that Islam is this rigid, monolithic religion that prevents you from doing things. There's all these barriers that you cannot cross. And what I'm trying to say is, look, there is, there, there are no rules. It really comes down to how you interpret the religion. But you can say there's no rules, but when you have a theocracy, a government that is fundamentalist Muslim, they make rules that they inflict on their people, don't right. they? And that's why you get people who cross the line who get stoned in public. Right. Stoned meaning throw rocks at them until they're dead. Right, right. That That is an, an unfortunate reality. And So that's really maybe the crux that of the is thing here. The thing so Muhammad might say... We got a problem here, and it's maybe it's because uh, governments are making everything black and white. Mm -hmm. When I wrote mm -hmm. my religious ideas, uh, hoping people would interpret them, are, do you really right? I, I that is always the case, you know. I mean, that is the the Taliban version, the honor killings that we see. That is not Islam as faith. That is not the Islam that I grew up feeling empowered by. That is an Islam made by governments and mullahs Boy. and politicians. And I would imagine it's just as frustrating for you as a Muslim to see this kind of um, fundamentalism Absolutely. that it is it's for a lot of sad. Christians to see that sort of, it's my way or the highway fundamentalism in uh, the Christian faith. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're talking about outsiders in the Muslim world, and we're joined by Michael Luongo, the editor of a book called Gay Travels in the Muslim World, and Maliha Masood, who's written Zatar Days and Henna Nights about her adventures traveling across Islam. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today it's outsiders in the Muslim world, and I'm joined by Maliha Masood, who's written Zatar Days and Henna Nights, and Michael Luongo, who's written Gay Travels in the Muslim World. And we're talking about the complexity of Islam and how when you travel, you can sort through things that might be difficult to understand if all you understand about the Muslim world is what you pick up in the mainstream media here in the United States. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Meliha, in your year traveling across Islam, you must have had so many magnificent, topsy-turvy experiences that reminded you of the value of travel. Give us an anecdote. What was something that you really think would surprise a traveler traveling through Islam? Well, my favorite country in the Middle East, um, if not the entire world, is Syria. It is a fascinating, fascinating hybrid of old and new, traditional and modern. And oftentimes I think Syria is uh, misperceived in the States. It's always identified through the political tensions and so forth. But I found it to be an amazing, amazing place. 
Um, I had a very interesting experience happen in Damascus, the capital of Syria, which I refer to in my book as the Hammam House Incident. Now, Hammam is the word for using a bathroom in the Middle East. And oftentimes, you know, um, when you're in the Yale souks and the bazaars, there is no public restroom that you can use. So one day I was wandering around and I had to go to the bathroom and I stumbled into a hairdressing salon and the man who owned it invited me to his house where I ended up inevitably staying for lunch and meeting the whole family, which turned into dinner. And this is about six hours and we met a whole group of his friends and relatives. And at this dinner, I met an older middle-aged couple who um, who seemed very nice, um, very very friendly and curious. And oftentimes, you know, when you are an outsider in the Muslim world, people are very very curious and friendly about you. So uh, you're never at a loss for advice and things like that. So this older couple invited us over to their house for dinner, and I was traveling with a friend at this point. And the following day, we took a taxi and went to their house. What I didn't know is after the appetizers and the drinks and the coffee, this couple invited us into their bedroom. And all of a sudden, they were opening up their bureaus and their closets and all these fancy clothes and skimpy lingerie were flying across the room. They were Syrian cross-dressers in a very conservative country. They were trying to challenge the taboos. And um, they wanted my friend and I to join in. We didn't quite know what, what to expect. Um, I've been offered food where I didn't want to accept it because <laughs> it didn't look very good. And I thought, well, it's polite. I better eat it. Here you're offered a, an adventure and it would have been impolite for you not to. At first, I sort of thought it was um, Halloween, Syrian style. It wasn't up to me to judge what was going so on. So what did you do? Um, we sort of just played along for a while, and it turned into this whole dress-up session. Dressing, you did dress-up. They like came a fashion on show. and started putting these fur coats and scandalous makeup on my friend and I, and we just played along. But um, I was getting more and more suspicious, you know, wondering, oh, boy, how are we going to get out of this snare? And where is this going? Trip um, or treat. Exactly, exactly. It was it was interesting, and it often sort of made me think, you know, um, how there's subcultures when you're traveling. Yeah. There is the um, tourist version of a country where you take your guidebook and you go yeah. to museums and I've been in and Syria, stuff. and I never dreamed of cross-dressing in Syria. Duality, huh? Duality. And funny thing is, I related to these cross-dressers so much because they were trying to be themselves and... Maybe Transcend the more strict, yeah, maybe the more strict the exterior in your society is, the more you need to balance that with your fantasies in your domestic world. Absolutely. Home, that's, baby. That's a whole right. other thing. Well, that's a whole other thing. And uh, Michael Luongo, you must have learned a lot collecting this, and, and you've got an interest in combating homophobia and so on. What was the big lesson you picked up? What's an anecdote from the essays in your book that you think is very instructive? Well, I think an, an anecdote that's discussed in my book is uh, one that had happened for me in Kabul on my first trip there uh, in 2003. I'm a photographer as well as a writer, and uh, that also allows me to meet a lot of people that I might not ordinarily because a camera itself is a way of communicating and getting people to gather around you. And I was uh, 
walking through uh, part of Kabul and there was a, a mosque and the wall around the mosque. It was a very traditional looking setting. And there was a man in very traditional clothing that was sitting in a niche in the wall. And if you wanted to stereotype a, a look of Afghanistan, this was it. So I started photographing him. He had a friend who was dressed in Western clothing, extremely handsome, who came by and wanted me to photograph him instead of his friend. This is all in front of a mosque. And the, the guy was so handsome that were this any other world, he would probably have been a model. Somebody would have snatched him off the street and put him on a runway or put him in a catalog and uh, already. Um, it was very clear that I enjoyed photographing him and that he enjoyed being photographed. All of these old men in turbans, some of them missing teeth, started coming out of the mosque to gather around us as we photographed. Now, actually, and, at this point, let me just interrupt you. You're a, you're a uh -huh. gay guy who's uh -huh. open to romance. Are you flirting with him mm -hmm. at this point? Well, I'm flirting with him in the sense that it's very clear that he's attractive. It's very clear that I enjoy photographing him. I'm not flirting with him in any sense. This was also my very first trip to Kabul, so I wasn't really sure where the boundaries were at all. Okay, so carry on. When then. these older men started gathering around us, uh, they used some other more obscene words, but uh, among the words that they used was homosex, and they started pushing us together. And um, that was about all they knew in English. Somebody came by to do some translating for me, and really explained that they were trying to push me to be with this man and that we needed to exchange numbers. Now, remember that these are old men with turbans, traditional outfits, half of them from the countryside. They've just come out of a mosque. Who probably knew this younger guy was gay. Well, again, gay is, a, is an interpretation. It's a Western interpretation that we're putting on this particular interaction. Clearly, they figured out that I'm gay, I'm of a certain age, and that maybe I'm interested in him. But within the boundaries of the culture, it wasn't exactly inappropriate for them to be doing this for some reason. It came as a complete surprise to me that, you know, we could simply do this. Um, nothing ever came of it, but it just was so... It's just a story that I tell people that I also put into the book that it goes so against so many things that you would think that for one, we're in front of a mosque. For one, there are all these old men. For one, I'm in Kabul. It's just one of those things that kind of blew my mind when it happened, but similar situations were constantly happening everywhere that I went. The other thing about traveling within the Islamic world is the hospitality. And I think, Maliha, you talked a little bit about it as well. I mean, people really want to, they're curious, but one of the things about Islam that's very important is welcoming people into your home, Absolutely. welcoming people. Oh, it's a um, huge thing offering, I've experienced. Mm -hmm. You just yeah. walk down the streets, you got yeah. enthusiastic offers to come home every day. You Absolutely. can go home with, and it's pure yeah. love of getting to know people and having a person from far away come yeah. into your home and show off the friend you found from the West that you can bring home and wine, and, or not wine and dine, but, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, lavish them with Absolutely. your hospitality. And a traveler is an honored guest in Muslim societies. Mm -hmm. It would be an insult if you refused oh, their hospitality. That's one of the beautiful things about traveling in Islam from Morocco to Malaysia. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about outsiders in the Muslim world today. I'm joined by Michael Luongo, who's the editor of a collection of 18 essays by gay travelers uh, in the Muslim world called Gay Travels in the Muslim World. And Michael's website for information on this book is simply gaytravelsinthemuslimworld.com. Also, we're joined by Meliha Masood. Meli's written a book based on her one-year adventure as a single uh, American Muslim woman traveling across Islam called Zatar Days and Hannah Nights. Meliha's uh, website is zatardays.com, Z-A-A-T-A-R-D-A-Y-S.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. 
Lori is on the line in Palo Alto, California. Hi, Lori. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thanks for speaking with me. You bet. Do you have any thoughts for Michael or Melihan? I, I do. Um, I did travel in Turkey in 98 with my husband, and we had a great time and learned a lot. And I do have a question for Malia. Mm-hmm. Do you think that as a single American woman traveling alone in Islamic countries, being Muslim helped or hindered you? That's a great question. It comes up a lot during talks, Laurie. Um, it certainly helped in that I was very familiar with the culture and the religion. So I was not an outsider from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Every time I went to a mosque or heard the call to prayer, I, I felt an immediate sense of belonging. On the other hand, being a woman and an American and a Muslim all at the same time was very confusing to people. They didn't quite know what to do with me, and um, they constantly wanted to pigeonhole me as um, one or the other. And I instead was of all. instead of all three identities. When I started wearing the headscarf as a way to blend in, mm-hmm. it really backfired in the sense that I blended in so well that I didn't stand out anymore as this first-time visitor from Seattle, Washington in in the Middle East. I couldn't get away with making tourist mistakes, getting lost in places, so I was immediately held to a higher standard where I was supposed to know the culture. I was supposed to know better, and I lost my tourist mistake allowances. Right. Right. So it was it was hard. I always felt that I was walking a tightrope mm-hmm. and feeling as an insider and outsider at the mm-hmm. same time. Now, isn't it an advantage, Melia, that you, you look um, Arabic? You look, you know, you're you, Pakistani, you blend so you have in that too advantage. Well. And if you made a point to look like a tourist, you could. But I would imagine you and Michael, who, who can we look blend like a in. Muslim also, <laughs> yeah. you can blend in. Now, if you're a, a blonde American woman from Nordic descent... That can be an advantage or a disadvantage. You know, I talk about this in my book. Um, I would say that if you do stick out, you get the red carpet treatment. People will automatically see you as an outsider, as a visitor, as a traveler, and they will go out of their way to help you. And beyond that, I mean, if you're different physically than the nation you're traveling in, I mean, Japanese people have little noses. I have a big nose. You, I'm a you, you will stick out, but it helps in the sense that you are... It's a more beautiful thing. I mean, if you're if you're light with blonde hair, isn't that more interesting to I, a Muslim I, man? Absolutely. I mean, you women, no matter what they look like, will draw attention when they're traveling in Muslim world. There is no distinction whether you have black hair or blonde hair or blue eyes or black eyes. Women draw attention, period. And that is often an advantage. Um, I underestimated all the help that I would get from people, particularly men. You do tend to befriend men quite more than women. And there's kind of three different kinds of people. There's men, there's Muslim women, and then there's Western women with backpacks and yeah. lots of money and different yeah. morals, you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, mm-hmm. that can be a real advantage or it can be a kind of a, an annoyance. But I mean, you yeah. can play it up as an advantage like you're talking right. about. Right. One of the tour members on our group was a single black American. Mm-hmm. And she toured Istanbul for a couple days on her own, and she was telling us when we met, she said, oh, yes, I had men following me, trying to talk to me. And then when we went to Konya, highly fundamentalist city, it was even more attention, and she felt a little uncomfortable with that. 
You know, I, I did meet a lot of, when I, because I was staying in backpacker type hotels, I would meet a lot of Europeans who would be traveling there. And oftentimes they would say that they were in the Middle East, particularly to meet men. Mm-hmm. And um, in a way, I felt that they were exploiting this attention a little bit because it was so easy. It was like moths drawn to a flame. And a lot of European women particularly enjoyed that attention they were receiving from men. And it was different for me because the fact that I was coming from the Western world meant that I'm open and I'm just as accessible as um, an European. But mm-hmm. every time I would wear my headscarf and go to the mosque, that was a different signal. So it was confusing. Lori, thanks for your call. Mm, thank you very much. We have Holger on the line from Tillamook, Oregon. Hi, Holger. Yes, sir. Thanks for your call. Yes, I have one question. I'm uh, comfortable in talking to women in European countries and that. And I plan on going to Africa where, you know, part of it is Muslim. How do I approach women without offending them or, or vice versa? Do I let them approach me first? Because, you know, they obviously know I'm a tourist. So in other words, how comfortable can I get with a female Muslim without... Are you talking about looking for romantic adventure no, or just, no, no. just sharing, just, uh, just being a friend? Okay. Yes, correct. I, I would say that you kind of leave it up to her to dictate how comfortable she is with you. My first advice would be don't offer your, your hand, don't shake hands with her until she herself extends that and um, let her guide you in a way and just kind of follow that cue. Hey, Holger, i got to mention my daughter, I mentioned, she's just 17 years old and so interested in social stuff and everything. She spent a month in a village in Morocco, wrote a fascinating journal, a, a very candid look at the social scene and the, and the artful dance that these guys do. She wanted to put together a, a soccer game for the kids in the village, and the boys couldn't be there if the girls were playing. I mean, there's some very strict limits. And on the other hand, they go down to the beach, and they're all quite like American teenagers. Uh, we'll put that on our website for a follow-up to get in touch with Michael Luongo's website about gay travels in the Muslim world or Meliha Masood's website about her experience in Zatar Days, Hen and Nights, or my daughter Jackie's journal from her trip in Islam as a teenage American, uh, go to the radio at website at ricksteves.com, and you can check out more on that. Holger, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Very quickly, Michael, as a, a gay traveler in Islam with, with your partner, can you get a hotel room? Depends on the country. I think uh, most countries uh, in the Muslim world, two men sharing a room is not unusual anyway, even if there's just one bed. But you also have uh, many chains now actively seeking gay men to travel. So Dubai is actively seeking to do that. Istanbul actively is seeking to do that. Okay, so if you play it cool, at least it'd be no problem. And Meliha, question for me. You're a Muslim from America. It must have been exciting to go to these top spots, these very much venerated mosques and so on, and actually worship. What was that like? I felt uh, an immediate sense of belonging there. So you could sense the importance of these to the to the Muslim pilgrim. Right. Just like a Christian could if they went to St. Peter's. Mm-hmm. And Cliff is on the line in Linwood, Washington. Hi, Cliff. Thanks for your call. Thank you. I was wondering, we hear so much about religion and what the Muslims think of our freedoms, but nothing about our history and our foreign policy. How are we really going to know, you know what's real over there and what's what's the... Uh, news seems to be blowing out of proportion. Oh, you mean how is an American who's just docile about getting their information and, and is, is just taking network news and Fox and CNN and so on really going to understand what the people are like in Islam? Right. 
well, that's sort of fundamental to all of us, I think. We're driven as travel writers to help Americans better understand the world by actually going there. And, and all of us believe that travel is a very powerful force for, for peace. And regardless of if you're Christian, Muslim, gay, or straight, you go to these countries and you come home seeing the oneness on this planet. Mm-hmm. Forgive me for jumping in there, but let's wrap up with that great thought. Uh, Michael, your comments on that. Well, I think that uh, it goes both ways. There's so many people that learn about U.S. culture and American culture by my visiting their their home, being in their living room, and sharing tea with them. Uh, and it's surprising even the assumptions they make about us. And so you can break down that barrier. So they can learn from our visit. That's a beautiful oh, point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They learn from our visit yeah. as much. Right. So we are breaking down misunderstandings. Meliha. I would say travel is a great way to shrink barriers and see the common humanity we all share. And there's a beautiful concept. It is the heart of Islam, tahweed. It's an Arabic word. It means unity and, like Rick said, oneness. And if we all believe that fundamentally we are all the same people, then the barriers really can shrink. It is all about perception. And I don't know of any better way than travel to see how similar we are all over the world. Amen. Thank you very much. And how do you say amen in Arabic? Amin. Amin. All right. We're talking outsiders in the Muslim world, and we're learning that if we travel, we become insiders for the entire world. And we learn that there's a lot of fear on this planet right now, and the flip side of fear is understanding, and you can gain that through travel. Michael Luongo, editor of Gay Travels in the Muslim World, Meliha Masood, author of Zatar Days and Henna Nights, Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.